Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. As many of you know, several weeks ago, I went in for a routine uh, physical. We talked about this with many of you, and and, uh, that's the one first physical I've had in many years, so obviously the time was due for me, and uh, I thought I was all good, you know, going in there, and basically we have a brand new doctor, and uh, very impressed with this doctor, and how they do it is, once you become a new patient, they have you come in for an introductory visit, they want to get to know you, and part of that process is they draw blood, and so I haven't had blood drawn in a while, they wanted to test everything that they do with the blood, and so they did that, and they have a follow-up appointment in two weeks for your physical, and so I go in, and uh, start talking to the, the, they check my vitals, and you know, I guess I have white coat syndrome, my blood pressure was like 150 over something, and I'm like, it's not usually this high, I'm just nervous, because I don't know what to expect, and so uh, they're like, everything's going to be good, and so they step out, the doctor comes in, the first thing the doctor says is she sits her stuff down, and she says, do you have a history of a high thyroid, or thyroid problems in your family? Uh, it's not usually something we talk about at dinner, um, so I don't think so. Uh, maybe, like maybe down the road, I, I don't know. Uh, but uh, she started questioning me, and then she brought out the computer, and she started showing me all my blood tests. And she said, you see this? This is really bad. It's really high. Your TSH is really high, and your cholesterol is high. I'm like, I'm 31 years old, and I don't eat that bad. I can't, what, what was, I'm all messed up. And so she begins to, to explain to me the issue of what a thyroid does and, you know, how the effect that that has on your body. And she's like, we're going to take some more testing. We're going to check the antibodies in your body to see what uh, further results can happen through this. And so they took some more blood, and two weeks later, uh, they called me up, and I found out that they diagnosed me with Hashimoto's disease. And so I had no idea what that was, but basically, if you do not address it, it could cause some serious problems down the road. And so uh, my wife, being the loving person that she is with a medical background, she started going on the war path and just researching like crazy. How can we take care of this? Where is it from? And come to find out, most likely the Hashimoto's was kicked off by the Lyme's disease that I had contracted when I was 18 years old. And uh, I thought that that was all taken care of, but apparently that goes in your body and it's dormant and then it could cause problems later on down the road. And so my wife's like, all right, let's see if we can address the Lyme's disease part. So she starts doing some research. She starts talking to Ava, some of you know, over at UNC's hospital system, who's a a doctor in pharmacology. And so she starts having this conversation with Ava. She's like, listen, I have just the thing. Um, I was diagnosed with this a while ago, so I've done a ton of research. Lyme's disease is fueled by sugar and gluten. So your husband needs to go on a sugar-free, gluten-free diet. And so I had this conversation with my wife. And I said, listen, there's two choices that need to be made here. I can either live longer and hate my life, or I can live shorter and enjoy it by eating all this food. And so, of course, me being the person that wants to see my kids get married, I decided to listen to my wife, because that's always the smartest thing you need to do anyway. And so I started going on this gluten-free, sugar-free diet. And so that started on Wednesday. And honestly, it's been like the best thing I've ever done. I feel awesome. I say all that to say this. I have been on diets in the past. You know, there's been times where you need to get in shape. And so it lasted for at least three days. And uh, I, would, I would try to set aside sugar, gluten, whatever, and, or carbs, and, and it would last until the point where somebody said, man, you look good, or you look like you lost weight, or, you know, I was no longer at the beach. Then I would go back to what I was eating before. 
And now I have been more committed to this diet now and, and focused than I have ever have been before. What changed? It wasn't my physical health that changed. Of course, it changed over time, but I've been dealing with this for probably past few years or so. I just now found out about it. So it wasn't that I, I no longer had a taste for gluten and sugar. It was the importance in my belief system regarding the seriousness of that decision that changed my commitment. In this Christian life, we all have a call from God to do something. And there is at some point where we are on fire for God. I mean, we are living for God. We're, we're going to church, which obviously everybody here today is in church. I mean, we're, we're staying faithful. Or we're in God's word. We're reading and we're praying. And then there's been times in our life where we fall away. Does that mean we lose our salvation? No. What happens is there's been a circumstance in our life that has taken our attention from understanding the importance of following God and staying close to him to something else. And so our, we become distracted the level of our commitment should never change because of the importance of who we are making the commitment to, and that being God. God is always good, and God always deserves our service and our adoration. But whether we stick by our commitments or not, we make God, uh, it's all based upon the belief that we have regarding the importance of that commitment. So for example, we understand that God has a specific will for everyone. God's will is that we would be saved, and of course, we re when we, we receive Christ and, and he comes into our heart, we receive him. But beyond that, God has a specific will for everyone. Where you are in your life right now is not a surprise to God. Who you married is not specifically given in Scripture. There are principles. The Bible says do not be unequally yoked. So in other words, don't have a safe person marry an unsafe person. But the fact that you married the particular person that you're married to, her name, his name was not given in Scripture. But it's all part of, of God's sovereign will. But this is why so oftentimes people seem to be on fire for God right after a personal uh, tragedy. Because it's at that particular moment that God is the only one and the most important being in, in their lives, and so they clung to him. God was of the utmost importance in their life, but the moment their life starts to go well, they falter on their commitment to God. I don't need God anymore. I can just continue to live the life the way I want to live. We're currently in the midst of a series entitled The People of the Nativity. And each week we've been focusing on a particular person within the nativity uh, uh, set. Last week we looked at Joseph and we looked at how Joseph showed himself to be faithfully obedient prior to God speaking. Talked about how in our life, if we ever want to be used by God in a huge way, we have to show ourselves faithful where we are right now. But if you has your, have you, as you have your Bibles to Luke chapter 1 this morning, we're going to look at the next character within the nativity. We're actually going to go back in time just a tad, and we're going to look at Joseph's wife, the mother of Jesus, being Mary. The last verse of the Old Testament is delivered by the prophet Malachi. 
And this is what it says. Very last words of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and I smite the earth with a curse. And just like that, God was silent for 400 years. The last words that Malachi predicted is that Elijah will come and he will set you free. He will set you free. Now I want you to imagine with me for just a moment being one of the Jewish people. That's the last words you heard. And for 400 years, nothing. God did not speak through a prophet. Now that doesn't mean that the Jews just sat around. Matter of fact, history tells us that they had endured a lot of political unrest and upset. They dealt with a lot of things. 400 years passed by. Some theologians refer to that as the silent years. But finally, in this small little town of Bethlehem, God fulfilled the Old Testament promise by delivering the Messiah. Paul describes it this way in, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. He says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. God first broke his silence with an elderly couple named Zacharias and Elizabeth. They were both faithful and righteous people that anticipated the coming of the Messiah. Zacharias was a priest and he dedicated his life to the service of God. We see in Luke chapter uh, 1 verse 6, the Bible describes them as being righteous before God. One day, God broke the silence by delivering a prophetic message to Zacharias through the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord told Zacharias and Elizabeth that they would give birth to a son and that son would pave the way for the Messiah. In Luke chapter 1 verse 17, it describes it this way, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias. Elias is another name for Elijah. To turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people for, uh, to prepare for the Lord. Elias being another name for Elijah is a direct fulfillment of the final words in the Old Testament that I just read earlier in Malachi. Where it says, behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Zechariah and, Elizabeth, and Elizabeth's son, John the Baptist, was the type of Elijah at Christ's first advent. The angel describes John the Baptist as having this spirit of power of Elijah. Just like Elijah, John the Baptist was known for his bold, uncompromising stand in the word of God, and he was effective in his ministry and paving the way for the Savior. Zacharias and Elizabeth, being the faithful couple that they were, they waited for God to work. And sure enough, just as God promised, Elizabeth became pregnant. And six months into her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel be appeared before a young lady named Mary. And we see the story here in Luke chapter 1, verses 26 down to 38. So if you could stand with me out of respect of God's word, we will read that here this morning. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, it says this. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God into a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. 
And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou hast conceived in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he shall be a great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom there shall be no end. Then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be the born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible." And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according to thy word. And the angel departed from her. Last week we saw through the life of Joseph the type of person that we must be before God uses us. Joseph was a faithful man. Now we come to the life of Mary. Mary was just given an outstanding, uh, physically impossible call from God. She was faced with the decision, do I completely surrender or do I fight against God's call. Through the life of Mary, we're going to see this response that we must take when God leads us, even when the call itself seems to be physically and utterly impossible. The title of the message this morning is Mary, Complete Surrender. Thank you. You may be seated. Many psychiatrists say that there are five stages of grief that everybody or a lot of people go through throughout their life they generally deal with when it comes to a tragic loss first off you have denial and isolation you have anger you have bargaining you have depression and you have acceptance now not everyone experiences all of these stages at the same time or even all of these stages altogether but generally speaking whenever there's a tragic change or tragic circumstance in someone's life they deal with with one of these stages When it comes to the call of God, there are generally stages that people go through. Not everyone goes through the same stages of once, but most of the time when God gives a call on a person's life, very rarely does a person immediately jump into following following God's call. Through this encounter with Mary, we see three stages of complete surrender that I really believe that a lot of us go through when God is working in our hearts. First off, we wrestle with God's call. We wrestle with God's call. This is where I praise the Lord for his long suffering. Whenever I observe an Old or a New Testament character who had an encounter with God, most of the time we read of them struggling to try to understand what God just asked them to do. God, you want me to do what? But here's the neat part. Never at any point in Scripture when they struggle to understand that do we see God frustrated with their struggle to understand We never see that. God responds back to them and he reveals to them as much as he would like to reveal that particular moment to try to help them understand it, but he never smacks them upside the head for questioning him. It's okay to question God at times. Not not saying that you completely walk out on him because you don't have the faith to trust him, but if God is asking you to do something and you say, God, Is this really what you want me to do? I don't know how I'm going to accomplish it. I'm going to trust you. But it's okay to question God and ask for clarification at times. It's what Mary did. 
There's two things that we struggle with that we can see here with Mary. First off, we wrestle with the intended recipient of God's call. We wrestle with the intended recipient of God's call. Look at it here with Mary in verse 28. The angel approaches Mary and it says, Hail, thou art highly favored, the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. The phrase highly favored means full of grace. Full of grace. We see in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6 that that phrase grace is translated accepted. Then he goes on to say here, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in his beloved. That's in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 6. So in essence, the angel portrays Mary as a recipient of God's grace, not a deliverer of God's grace. She's a recipient of God's grace, which is what we all are. We are all recipients of God's grace. What was God's grace that Mary was the recipient of? The angel says it here. He says, the Lord is with you. This is the very definition of the word Emmanuel. God with us. And so the angel wanted Mary to be able to understand that the Lord was with him. You were receiving the grace of God. And then he goes on and he, he continues to deliver the message. The angel appeared personally before Mary, told her that she was a recipient of God's grace, which will be delivered through the Messiah. And because God has chosen Mary to deliver God's grace to the world, the angel calls her what? Blessed among women. Blessed among women. What an awesome, overwhelming, and confusing encounter that Mary just experienced. To try to process this angel showing up before her, calling her blessed among women, and telling her that she is the recipient of God's grace, and she will be blessed. So as a result, we see her struggle in verse 29. It says, and when she saw him, she was troubled at this saying, and she cast in her mind. In other words, she was trying to decipher exactly what he was talking about. Casting in her mind means that she began to reason in her mind as to what he was trying to come across. She's probably thinking to herself, highly favored among women? I'm highly favored among women? I am not financially, I am not socially, or even old enough to receive such a call from God. We talked about it last week. Most likely, Mary and Joseph were older teenagers. They weren't even uh, what we would consider adults yet. 16, 17, 18 years old, maybe 19. And Mary was just told that she's going to be the mother of the Savior of the world. Mary wrestled with the intended recipient of God's call. God, you have the wrong person. You have the wrong person. All throughout Scripture, God chooses people that know that they are not fit and worthy enough to receive God's call because it is with those people that the dependence upon God is most desired. God chooses people that know that they are not fit for the call of God because it's, it's with those people that the dependence upon God is the most desired. Here is the reality. None of us are anything Outside the grace of God. We're nothing outside the grace of God. But sometimes some of us believe that we have accomplished something. And so therefore we push God out of the, out of the picture because we believe we just don't need God. We're good. My career set up. I have my house. I got my spouse. I've got my girlfriend, my boyfriend. I'm good. God, thanks. And we give our thumbs up to God and we tell him we're okay. But how humble is it to receive a call from God that we know we cannot accomplish ourselves? 
that we know it's above us. The mere fact that God is calling you to do the impossible speaks to your humble dependence upon him. The mere fact that God is asking you to accomplish something great speaks to your humble dependence upon him. The struggle of Mary is evident with the angel Gabriel, so he proceeds to further deliver his message. He says in verse 30, The angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. The angel told Mary that she found favor with God. This once again speaks to the grace of God, which is the whole story of Christmas. No one deserves the grace of God. In fact, the very definition of grace is this. It is getting something that we do not deserve. That is grace. Getting something that we do not deserve. This is what we must first understand with the call of God in our life. You're right. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. It is all by the grace of God that we receive the call. So the fact that God approaches us with the call in which we are not worthy enough or capable enough of fulfilling is the very definition of grace. So we have to stop pretending to be somebody that we're not so that God can use us. Just remain faithful. Just remain faithful. Gabriel continues in verses 31 through 33, he says, And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now Mary has something else to process. Mary is not a scientist. She's not a doctor. But she knows how the biological system works. She knows how anatomy works. It takes a man and a woman to produce a child. Gabriel says that you will receive in your womb a baby. You will bring forth a son, but Mary knows that she has never been with a man. So she starts to wrestle with this logical impossibility, illogical impossibility, This leads Mary to the second struggle that we often struggle with regarding the call of God, and that's this. We wrestle with the logical possibility of God's call. We wrestle with the logical possibility of God's call. We see Mary's response in verse 34, and it reveals her struggle. Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I do not know a man? God loves to reveal his power all throughout the impossible. Here's the important thing about God that we serve. God is not bound to laws of logic. He's not bound to that. Nothing can hold God back from accomplishing his will. So if this is true, which it is, then why do we struggle so much with trusting God for our lives? God is not bound to logical, everything that makes sense. He's above that. Why do we struggle so much with trusting God with our lives? This struggle comes in many different forms. We lose focus on God, and so something comes into our life, and what happens when something comes into our life? What's usually the first thing that goes? Church, Bible reading, prayer. We start throwing all these different things out. God's working in our heart, asking us to do a certain thing, asking us to step up our Christian growth, and we feel that call, we feel that tug, and what happens? We begin to make excuses as to why we cannot do that. And sometimes they can be good excuses, so to speak. They can be good things. I'm just so busy with my family. I'm just so busy with work or with fill in the blank. And there are times where our family, where our work does take a little bit more attention. 
but we begin to use those things as an excuse to check out on God. And it's not that life just got busy. What it's doing is it's revealing more of an underlying issue, and that issue is, I just don't trust you, God, right now. You're not important. I'm still a Christian. I still love you. I still follow you. But this has got my attention right now. And so it comes through in many different forms. One of my favorite stories regarding this excuse-making of this seemingly impossible thing is what happens with Moses. Take your uh, Bibles, hold your finger here, flip back to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus chapter 4, this conversation that God has with Moses. And I just, I just love this particular passage. We see in Exodus chapter 3, just as a background, God delivers his call to Moses about being the Israelite, the leader of the Israelites, leading the people towards the promised land out of the Egyptian captivity. God appears him before a burning bush, which is obviously a miracle in and of itself. Then he starts telling Moses his plan. Moses begins to come up with excuses, trying to comprehend what God just asked him to do. We see in chapter 3 that Moses says that he's a nobody. How will Pharaoh ever listen to him? God says, I will be with you. Then Moses comes up with the excuse of people, they just won't listen to me. And God says, well, just tell them I am sent you. I am was the name for God. Then Moses comes up with another excuse and says that the people won't believe me. They just won't believe me. And it was at that point where God shows him his ability, God's ability to accomplish the impossible. And we see that in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is the story. And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, cast it to the ground, and he cast it to the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and he caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath appeared unto thee. That in and of itself would probably be good enough to convince me that God can do whatever God wants to do. But God doesn't stop there. He goes on and says this in verse 6. And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his land was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again. And he plucked out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. What do we learn from this encounter with Moses? Moses had nothing to offer other than himself. And it was God that was the one that accomplished the miracle. None of what occurred to Moses in Exodus chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 made any logical sense. A a stick doesn't turn into a snake and then turn back into a stick. Your hand doesn't just go from inside your bosom being completely healthy back out and having this intense disease being completely corroded back into your bosom and come back out healthy. That does not make logical sense. What God wanted Moses to understand is that he does not operate within the logic. He operates in the realm of the impossible. All things that show us that God is the God of the impossible. So if God's plan is to supernaturally impregnate Mary with a Messiah in a way that defies all logic, then you better believe that God has the power to do so. When God gives us a call, it is okay to wrestle with the logical possibility of that call, but we must rest assured that whenever God calls us to do something, he will always accomplish the task. Which leads us into our second point here this morning, the second stage of complete surrender. We trust in God's provision. 
We trust in God's provision. After hearing the struggle that Mary had with the logic of God's call, Gabriel begins to to explain this provision in verse 35. And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost will come upon you. This was a supernatural act in which the Holy Ghost implanted the seed of Jesus into Mary. It was not a divine cohabitation, sometimes seen in pagan mythology. And the power, he continues on, of the highest shall overshadow you. Therefore, also the holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Why do we trust in God's provision? Because number one, we trust in God because God is sovereign. We trust in God because God is sovereign. What does sovereignty mean? This is the attribute that defines God as being the absolute, complete, and supreme ruler. The sovereignty of God says that God orders everything, controls everything, and rules over everything. So in other words, this means that there is nothing that comes to pass without God first giving permission for that. As human beings, we don't always like the sovereignty of God. For example... When my wife and I first, when we experienced the miscarriage of our second child, that was part of God's sovereignty. He knew that was going to happen. He allows things to happen, but I didn't like it. I didn't enjoy it. But this is what we trust in. It's all part of God's sovereign plan. And we do know this, that everything that God has for you in your life is nothing but good. As Christians, we are the elect of God. It is all 100% good. Do we always enjoy it? No. But we can rest assured that it is going to lead to something that is good for us because that's the type of God that we serve. We trust in the sovereignty of God. Because God is sovereign, he can use absolutes to describe how he's accomplished his plan with Mary. We see in verse 35, the angel says, the Holy Ghost shall come upon you. The power of the highest shall overshadow you. The holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. Because God is sovereign, we know that he has a plan for our lives and for the world and that his plan and call for our lives will happen according to how he declares it. But the sovereignty of God, this is important, the sovereignty of God does not automatically afford mankind with the knowledge of how God will completely accomplish his plan. God is sovereign, we are not. So when things come into our life and we don't fully understand why, God is not at liberty to explain everything to us. We just trust in his sovereignty. For example, the angel told told Mary that the Holy Spirit would come upon her and that he would supernaturally impregnate her, but it does not describe how that was going to happen. It just says it will. Nowhere in Scripture, we try to decide from a, from a, obviously we know how babies are formed, but that very act of how that came to be is never told to us. There are certain things that God will not share with us. But it's ultimately for our benefit. This is what we know. We know that Mary became impregnated with the seed of Jesus Christ, just as God said that it will happen. There are times in our life where God will tell us to do something, 
There'll be certain situations in our life that will arise that do not make sense. God's sovereignty says that his call for your life and those set of circumstances are there for a reason, and that reason is ultimately part of God's plan for our life. But the knowledge of how that call will be accomplished or how that circumstance fits into God's plan is not automatically given to us. We just have to trust in the sovereignty of God and fully commit to ourselves to his leading and his direction. And I firmly believe that it's the lack of the belief and the acceptance and the full out sovereignty of God what causes a lot of people to walk away from God when the tough times happen. God, you said your word's going to bless me. Why am I not being blessed right now? Why am I having so many financial problems? Why am I getting laid off my job? Why am I having so many work problems? God, I thought you were going to bless me. God says he will bless us. But what you believe, what I believe to be blessings at times, is not what God has in mind. God has something in mind far greater than that. But it's the trusting in the sovereignty of God. God, I don't like where I am right now. I don't like what I'm dealing with right now. But God, I know that I'm yours. You only will good things to happen to me. And so I'm going to trust in you through that. And then he goes on and Not only do we trust in the sovereignty of God, let her be, we trust in God because God is omnipotent. Omnipotent describes this all-powerfulness of God. There is nothing that God cannot do that coincides with his nature. To help Mary better understand the miracle that is about to take place inside her womb, the angel tells Mary about her cousin Elizabeth in verse 36. This is what the angel says, And behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath also conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. Once again, the pregnancy of Elizabeth was a complete miracle that defied the very biological laws. She was an older woman who had already gone past the childbearing years. And on top of that, she was a barren woman. In other words, there was something about her biologically that did not allow her to get pregnant. Two things against her. And the angel said that she's pregnant. But then he he, he delivers it with this verse that I believe we all need to remind ourselves on a daily basis. After he explains that impossibility, he says in verse 37, for with God, nothing shall be impossible. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. What you believe to be impossible, what society tells you is impossible, it's not impossible with God. God will never call someone to be a part of something or to accomplish something without first giving the power to be able to accomplish it. As we come into the Christmas season, many of you have gone to Walmart, uh, department stores somewhere, and you've seen those people standing outside, right, ringing the bell, and they got the Christmas hats on. It's the Salvation Army. They're asking for donations. Salvation Army has been around for many, many years. It was started in England in 1865 by a former minister named William Booth. The Salvation Army was started with the idea of going out and meeting the world and bringing Christ to them. Over the years, the Salvation Army has grown to be one of the leading Christian organizations when it comes to evangelism and helping the needy. When evangelist Wilbur Chapman was visiting London, he had the opportunity to sit down and interview William Booth before William Booth passed away. After hearing stories of victories and trials, Wilbur Chapman asked the General Booth if he would disclose his secret for success. Dr. Booth, or Dr. Chapman said that General Booth hesitated for just a second, and then with tears streaming down his face, he recounted this. I will tell you the secret. 
God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, men with greater opportunities, but from the day I got the poor of London in my heart and a vision of what Jesus could do with the poor of London, I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, it is because God has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influences of my life. After hearing this sober reply from General Booth, William Chapman said as he went away from that meeting that he had this one thought. The greatness of man's power is the measure of his surrender. The greatness of man's power is his measure of his surrender. When we lay down our rights, our desires, our life, and yield it over to the power of God, then our power is replaced with the power of God. And with that, we can accomplish anything through the power and the will of God. Which brings us to our final point here this morning, number three. As we are following God, we rejoice in God's grace. We rejoice in God's grace. Drop down to... Verse 46, this is the beginning, as I mentioned earlier, verses 46 down to 55 is Mary's Magnificate. This is a lot of the words that she says here, Old Testament allusions. She's also repeating a lot of words from Hannah. When Hannah cried out to God in praise after she dedicated her son Samuel to the temple. We're just going to focus on the first um, four verses here, verses 46 to 49. And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low estate of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, for he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. Overwhelmed by this grace in her life, Mary breaks into this beautiful song of praise, and she lifts it up to God. Mary recognized her need for grace of God. Mary said, for he hath regarded the low estate of this handmaiden. I have nothing to be able to give to him. But God regarded that. Mary knew that she was nothing outside the grace of God. She had nothing to offer and she certainly could not fulfill God's call on her own. But Mary, recognizing her need for God's grace and trusting in the power and the sovereignty of God, completely surrendered to the goal of God in her life, and that call produced great joy and comfort in her heart. Struggling in life right now? Maybe you're fighting God working in your life. God is calling you to do something different. You know he is, and his will is going to happen no matter what. We understand that. We don't fully know what God's will is, but we can trust in his sovereignty. But we're fighting it right now. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go in every once in a while, check in with God, make sure we're, we're still good with the big guy upstairs, so to speak. But give him my whole life, hold up. I'm not doing that. God did not place us on this earth to fulfill our dreams. God did not place us on this earth to fulfill our dreams. The question, what is your dream, is not the right question that we ought to ask. The question, what is God calling you to do, is the one that we must center our life upon. And understanding the goodness of God and how he's equipped us, if we surrender our, our, our wills to God, I guarantee you that the dreams that you have are going to be exactly what God is calling you to do. So the question must be, What is God asking me to do? How can I best please him? 
And that's what I want to center my life upon. This Christmas, let's move from questioning the call of God to complete surrender. And just like Mary, when we follow God's leading, the only response that we can give is a complete and overwhelming joy.